Press. This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one-hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. Today, Glenn Beck said on his radio program that he wouldn't be surprised that Jesus could return within 10 years. What do you believe? Well, a new low of 74% of Americans surveyed said God is something they believe in. That's down from 90% in 2004, according to a Gallup poll. The poll also finds that for the first time, less than 60% answered yes to the question of whether hell or the devil were something they believe in. Well, if you don't believe in hell or the devil, what likelihood is it that you're going to believe in a Messiah? Regarding belief in heaven, hell, and the devil... 87, excuse me, 18%, 27%, and 28% of respondents effectively answered directly that they don't believe in those things. Americans' beliefs regarding God, angels, heaven, hell, and the devil have fallen by double digits since 2001. According to the Gallup poll, America's most famous pollster, Gallup has used this framework to measure belief in these spiritual entities five times since 2001. And the last time, in May of this year, the poll finds that each is at its lowest point. Compared with 2001, belief in God and heaven is down by almost 16 points each. And while belief in hell has fallen 12 points, and the devil and angels are down 10 points each. And, as a point of interesting information, regular churchgoers, Protestants and Republicans, in particular, seem to remain largely resolute in their beliefs as compared with the rest of the nation. It's called Americans' Declining Faith. The Gallup poll is the only latest of many surveys revealing America's faltering belief in the Creator, as well as the moral beliefs historically attached to the biblical faith. At a poll released in May by Christian pollster George Barna that drilled down into people's actual beliefs about Christian principles found a mere 4% of overall Americans polled who possessed what he called a biblical worldview. While among born-again Christians, the incidence of biblical worldview among them fell from 19% in 2020 to 13% in 2023. And compared to adults over 55 and between 35 and 54, fewer of those age 18 to 34 believe in each of these five concepts, that is, God and angels and the devil and so on. But majorities profess belief in all but the devil. In other words, the devil is getting off the hook. And if the devil is off the hook, what's the need for a messiah? Today on Viewpoint, we want to take a look at this matter of belief, and I'm glad that you've joined us this conversation, as always, with ever-increasing conviction, talk that transforms. You know, everybody says, just believe. The word believe has become a buzzword, hasn't it? In our postmodern world and culture, 
You can find plaques in every store all around yourself, plagues, uh, plaques abounding, encouraging belief, vague exhortations, promises from self-help, business and religious platforms. Believe and you shall have. Believe and you shall succeed. Believe and be blessed. Believe. Become rich. Believe you're becoming. Just believe. Believe what? Believe who? And what's the driving purpose of such amorphous belief? What might be the consequences? Is the promised fruit of this kind of belief certain? And upon what evidence is that alleged certainty dependent? You see, in this rapidly advancing what is called messianic age, these questions, I think, take on an ever greater significance and bear vast implications for your life and for mine. In reality, what it means to believe is cloaked in, well, kind of an unrecognized mystery that enshrouds our minds and even when attempting to contemplate the truth, meaning or implications of the word Messiah. Years ago, in uh, sending out a lawsuit that uh, was the result of actually an open letter being addressed to the Christian leaders of America in 1996, it turned into a, a lawsuit, Jehovah God, the Lord of Nations versus the spiritual leaders of America a.k.a. pastors, parachurch leaders, uh, broadcasters, authors, publishers, and so on, his defendants, filed in the courts of the Lord, not in the courts of men, and it was served on 300 of the most prominent Christian leaders in the land. In that particular document, I made this statement. Belief in God is killing America. You say, Really? What could that possibly mean? Belief in God is killing America? Yes. Here's the reason. God never called us to believe in him. He called us to believe him. And there is a radical, radical difference. Believing in something and actually believing is something very different. Because you can believe in something and still not do anything about it in response, which means you don't really believe at all. It's just a theory, just sort of almost like a figment of your imagination. So what does the word believe actually mean? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, Perhaps it has something of a cultural nuance. Uh, Whether we realize it or not, the word believe can be very slippery in its definition, in its interpretation, and yes, even in its implication. And that's, I think, due to our human propensity, even our intention sometimes to superimpose upon words, not just what they mean, but also nuances of what we want or prefer them to mean to satisfy what? Our our rationalizations of truth and facts and behaviors. But If to believe has no unified accepted meaning, then where are we? We're eternally at loss to resolve the meaning even of the word Messiah and the Messianic Age. And that leaves behind, I think, an impenetrable veil 
that defies our definition and consequential conviction of mind and heart. So, is belief absolute? Is it variable? Is it dependent upon a variety of outlooks, experiences, and opinions? Is an opinion that I state as a belief an actual belief? You might think, well, I'm just playing around, toying with words. But actually, that's not true. If it is necessary, is it necessary, if we're to be honestly and with integrity, seek to unveil the mystery of the ages as to the coming Messiah, that mystery of Messiah persists precisely because of our mystifying use of the word believe. I believe it does. We'll take a look at what the dictionary actually says about believe, and then the Hebrew context of the word. We'll be right back, friends. This is important. It's much more important than you can possibly imagine. Once upon a time, children could pray and read their Bibles in school. Divorces were practically unknown, as was child abuse. In our once great America, virginity and chastity were popular virtues, and homosexuality was an abomination. So what happened in just one generation? Hi, I'm Chuck Chris Meyer, and I urge you to join me daily on Viewpoint, where we discuss the most challenging issues touching our hearts and homes. Could America's moral slide relate to the Fourth Commandment? Listen to Viewpoint on this radio station or anytime at saveus.org. So what did happen in just one generation? How is it the American people, even professing Christians and their pastors, could have changed so dramatically concerning moral positions or the support of immoral positions and a whole variety of other things, including belief in God, belief in the devil, belief in angels, belief in hell, and so on. How is it that could happen? It's because our beliefs are so fickle. In other words, we're not secure in the word believe. Our beliefs seem to be more guided not by faith, but by feelings. Have you noticed that? Before we get into the dictionary analysis of the word believe, which is quite simple actually, I want to share some words, excerpts from my book, uh, Seduction of the Saints. How to stay pure in a world of deception. You remember that Jesus' number one warning concerning the end of the age was, take heed that no man deceive you. So he was concerned not about unbelievers being deceived because Jesus said in John 3, the unbelievers are condemned already. He is concerned about professing believers, those who profess to be his followers. Those were the ones of his primary concern. And he said, you guys are going to face immense unbelief, disbelief, yes, even profound deception. Well, it wasn't just Jesus. The Apostle Paul made expressly clear that in the season of the last days, these last days, professing believers in Christ would not be willing to put up with sound doctrine. But after their own lusts, feelings, shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. 
We see that happening. But what we don't realize is that many of us have been caught up in the itching ear syndrome and don't even realize it. That's what the statistics are telling us. The general terror, tenor of the minds of men and women, yes, even those who profess Christ as Savior, will be to hear only what they want to hear, what's pleasing, what makes them feel good, what seems generally acceptable, what markets well, and what seems successful. In these kinds of perilous times, when people resist the truth and become of corrupt minds, even reprobate or perverted in their faith, the Apostle Paul said that seducers shall wax worse and worse, multiplying so that deception actually becomes the norm, deceiving and being deceived. So times, these times are truly perilous when the majority not only want to be deceived, but become complicit themselves in propagating deception. And because such people receive not the love of the truth, Paul says God shall send them strong delusion. Well, if we're honest about it, the spiritual history of Israel and Judah reveals that perilous phenomena in part, but it's going to be amplified, you could say, almost in an art form in these end times. So here, here's what uh, the Lord ordered the prophet Ezekiel to do. <clears throat> Listen to this. He did the same thing with Jeremiah, but here's what he did with Ezekiel. He said, prophesy against the prophets of Israel, their own premier spiritual leaders who purported to be the mouthpieces for God. He said, prophesy against these prophets of Israel to those who prophesy out of their own hearts. Woe unto the foolish prophets that follow their own spirit and have seen nothing and have seen vanity and lying divination, a vain vision. They have seduced my people, saying, peace when there is and was no peace. The prophets were the seducers, but the people were willingly seduced because they were of a mind and heart to be seduced. Those are just some excerpts from uh, the leading chapter, uh, one of the leading chapters in my book, Seduction of the Saints, under the question, can saints be seduced? Indeed, they can. In fact, that was Jesus' primary warning right there in Matthew chapter 24 called the Olivet Discourse. Now, from there we shift back to looking at what it means to believe. Now, you may think that this is just toying, uh, playing with words, but it's not. Words are supposed to have meaning. Not varied meanings, but meaning. Meaning in the context of the way they are used, but if the words don't have that absolute meaning, then we have a problem. Because we can't accept communication, we can't accept communication between one another, uh, between spouses, between parents and children, uh, between pastors and their parishioners, and, yes, between a government and their people. And that's our problem, isn't it? Massive, massive deception. 
So we have Joe Biden telling us for the bully pulpit of America over and over again, take the vaccine. You must take the vaccine because it will keep you from getting the virus and it will keep you from spreading the virus. Neither one of those statements was true, even a little bit, not even a little bit. And that's why the CDC had to change its definition of the meaning of vaccine because those jabs were not vaccines. Are you beginning to get the picture? So let's go back to the meaning of the word belief. The dictionary uses these examples. To accept as true. To accept as real. A firmly held opinion. A firmly held conviction. A truth, faith, or confidence in something or someone. To feel sure of. To think or suppose. To have confidence in a person or course of action. An opinion that something is right, proper, or desirable. Dictionary definitions. But notice very carefully, every nuanced definition presupposes experience, information, or evidence upon which a person's belief is based. So, actual belief is totally dependent on whether a person has adequate evidence on which to base his or her belief or opinion. But even more importantly, I think, the necessary condition of both our mind and our heart, such that the person is willing to embrace truth, arising from that evidence, without ulterior motives leading to rejection, thereby choosing to believe a lie. So the reality is, words are cheap and opinions are even cheaper. Words matter. Friends, our words have to be chosen very carefully. The definitions have to be preserved persistently and the implications embraced without playing games with those words. No political, religious, or mental gymnastics. So, when we talk about the word Messiah, we have to approach it with a seriously seeking mind and a heart that's not going to fall prey to fickle feelings, to political power, to religious preconceptions, as it has over the many centuries. If we're indeed in the messianic age, the very word Messiah should be sobering to every sincere and serious-minded person. It's true. So you say, well, I thought the coming Messiah was to be a hope. Well, it is. It's a hope for those that are prepared. It's a despair for those who are not. That's exactly the problem. So you can either deny or pretend that a Messiah, that the Messiah is not coming or is not coming soon, certainly not in your lifetime, so you don't feel like you need to be prepared, or on the contrary, you can pretend that you are prepared when in fact, You're not. Okay. That having been said, let's look at what the word believe means from the Hebrew perspective. You see, the Bible was not written in Greco-Roman language. 
it was written by Hebrews. That is, people we called Jews, but they were Hebrews. Those that came out of Egypt were called Hebrews or Hebrews. Hebraic people. And their view of the word belief is very different than our Greco-Roman viewpoint. You might say, well, wasn't the New Testament written in Greek? Yes, but it was written by Hebrews and translated into Greek, but the meanings were Hebrew. So let's talk about the word belief. From the Hebrew perspective, to believe something is not just to give mental assent to it. So it's not like just saying, well, uh, I believe in absolute truth. You can say you believe in absolute truth, but do you hang your life on it? Are you willing to believe that what is absolutely true is absolutely true and to conform your life to it? So to believe in a theory of absolute truth means nothing unless I actually believe and act upon the truth that I say I believe in. So we have a, uh, a whole series of laws. And I'm not talking about the laws of men. I'm talking about the laws of God, even the laws of nature, like the law of gravity. You can say, well, I believe in the law of gravity. Okay? And most people do. It's self-evident that there is something called the law of gravity because you can't just jump off a platform and expect to fly. People have tried to do that, and it didn't go well for them. You can't just jump off a platform and expect to fly. Something draws you to the earth, and it draws you to the earth faster than you would like. So if you jump out of an airplane, you don't want to jump out without something that is going to help you restrain the speed of your fall, or you are going to meet a very unpleasant result of your disbelief in the law of gravity, because the law of gravity will prevail, and you will not end up well, no matter what you think you believe about it. So acting on the law, the belief in the law of gravity means you're going to do something to protect yourself from the inevitable result or consequence of defying the law of gravity. You're going to wear a parachute. Or you're going to be in an airplane that can sustain flight because you yourself cannot. You do not have the ability to restrain the effect of the law of gravity. But the interesting thing is that somehow we rationalize in our minds that that isn't necessarily true for me or in other kinds of circumstances. For if God says, for instance, the wages of sin is death, how do we respond to that? That's an absolute truth from God's perspective or viewpoint. How do we respond to that? Yes, but. Right? Yes, but. 
The wages of sin is death, but maybe not today. Maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe a year from now, maybe a hundred years from now, but not today. I don't, I'm not going to have to bear the consequences of that. So I'm going to disregard that the wages of sin is death because I can sin as I want now and avoid or avert the consequences in whole or in part. That's our ability to rationalize, to play games with the words that we say we believe. All right, let's say I believe in God. Well, the devil also believes in God. It doesn't get us any kudos to believe in God, does it? Even the demons believe in God, and they tremble. So why don't human beings tremble at the belief in God? Hmm. Interesting, isn't it? And if we don't tremble at the meaning of the belief in God, why is it we're not so willing to prepare for the coming Messiah who is God? We'll be right back. There is so much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind. Chuck has some great resources to strengthen your marriage. First off, a fact sheet on the state of the marital union, a fact sheet on the state of ministry, marriage, and morals. SaveUS.org. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. What does the Bible really teach about this? Find all of this at SaveUS.org. Also, a letter to pastors, the Hosea Project, SaveUS.org, and many more resources to strengthen your marriage. It's all on Chuck's website, SaveUS.org. Again, you can listen to Chuck's Viewpoint broadcast live and archived. Save America Ministries website at SaveUS.org. Welcome back to Viewpoint. Today we're talking about the matter of belief, what it means to believe. The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you should be saved in your house. What does that mean? Well, that's one simple phrase, or distillation, right out of the Bible, and it is true. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved in your house. So you might say, Chris Meyer, didn't you just tell us in the early part of the program today that what's killing America is belief in God? Well, yes, So what does the Bible mean? What did the Apostle Paul mean when he said, believe the gospel or believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you should be saved? He didn't mean believe in God. He meant to believe him. In other words, to take God at his word. To believe in God in the Hebrew virtue is to believe him. To take him at his word. Not to play games with his word. Not to rationalize what he might have meant. But to take him at face value. To take God at face value. Now, if we take God at face value, what does that mean? It means we realize he's God and I'm not. That's the problem with Americans today. We somehow believe that we are co-equal with God. Well, we don't say that because they know that's blasphemy, but we act like it. 
We, you know how we act like it? By rationalizing what God has said. And then we justify what we want out of what God has said, eliminating the rest of what he did say, and then somehow we find ourselves actually redefining God in our own image. And that's exactly what Time Magazine said was happening to our country back on April 5th, 1993. Remember that. We talked about it over and over here on this program. One of the most important magazine covers and stories ever written in American history. I think it's almost more important than the Time Magazine headline in the 1960s, Is God Dead? Because if we say we believe in God, but we don't believe him, he might as well be dead, but we've convinced himself that he's not, or we convinced ourselves that he's not, while living as if he is dead. That's our problem. And if that be true, even though on the surface we say, yes, I believe that Jesus is coming soon, Yes, we're living in the end times. But somehow in the depths of and recesses of our minds and hearts, we don't really believe it. Because if we did, we would act like it, wouldn't we? In other words, our actions would correspond to what we say we believe. And that, my friends, is the Hebrew understanding of the word believe. It's so critical to understand the difference. Because a Greco-Roman viewpoint of the word believe, that we just give assent to certain facts, mental facts and so on, is not what God is looking for. There are a whole lot of things that go along with defining what it means to believe. One of the things initially that it means is you'll confess your sin. You'll agree with God's viewpoint concerning your life, concerning your behavior, concerning your background, concerning the fact that you have inherited a uh, a spiritual disease called sin that inhabits your heart, and you need to be cleansed from that. Otherwise, the wages of sin is going to bring about death in your life, eternal death and damnation. So if you won't confess your sin... You want God to forgive you, but you don't want to confess you're already missing the point. You don't believe. The reason you don't believe is because you don't want to admit, we don't want to admit that we actually did pretend to be God and violate his word without consequences. It's just the way it is. So, We need, we desperately need the Messiah. When the Messiah came the first time, Jesus, Yeshua, he came to forgive people from their sin who would confess and walk with him in spirit and in truth. That's what he did. Did you know that Jesus had many followers in those days? He did. We know he had at least 500 at one point. And one day Jesus said, look, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in what I'm doing. And so 
all of these people that were following him, saying they believed in him, no longer walked with him. In other words, their belief was conditioned on what they wanted to believe, not what Jesus said and who he was. And he was Messiah, full of grace and truth. But they couldn't embrace the fullness of his grace and truth. They wanted his grace, but they didn't want his truth. That's our problem. We want grace, but we don't want truth. So, we've had 2,000 years now. 2,000 years of waiting, God's patient waiting, full of grace and truth to enable humankind to embrace the spirit and truth of Jesus, Messiah. And how has that gone for us? How is that working for us today? Well, we see that with every day and week and month that passes, the belief, the actual belief in conforming our lives to the ways, word, and will of God is diminishing, not increasing. Why is that? You can call it the great falling away if you want, which it is. But on an individual basis, it's because there's something in my mind, in my heart, in my will, in my emotions, and a whole raft of other things that is pressing in upon me, bringing me to the place where I am gradually elevating myself to become as God, determining what is true, what is not true, what is right, what is not right, what will prepare me for the second coming of Christ or not prepare me, or even if I do need to be prepared because somebody told me all I needed to do was say I believed in God or believed in Jesus. Get the point. My father used to call it easy believism. Easy believism. And he was right. But we're finding the what that looks like on the ground to be quite dramatic. Now, the closer we get to the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is the coming of the Messiah, the second coming of the Messiah. You see, the first coming, he came to save us from our sin if we would confess. The second time, he's coming to judge us in and for our sin because we didn't confess and we didn't live as if we believed. That's the problem. So, who is going to do the judging? The same one who came full of grace and truth to forgive our sins. If we would walk in faith, confessing our sin, turning from it, that's called repentance, and then walk the walk of righteousness and holiness without which no man would see the Lord. But somehow in our teaching and preaching and our hyper-emphasis on evangelism, we have missed the foundation of God's purpose, and that was that we would truly take him at his word and live accordingly. That's called obedient discipleship. That is what has been missing. So when we talk excitedly, 
Many are talking more and more excitedly about the coming of Messiah. And that's good. The question is, are we actually listening to what Jesus said about his coming? He said it's going to take you by surprise. It's going to take the majority of the people by surprise. But the Apostle Paul said to the Thessalonians, it should not take you by surprise, as it will everybody else, because we already know these things. But if we say we know them, why is it we're not living according to what we say we know? You see, that's the problem with the word believe. So, in the next uh, few minutes, I want to share with you uh, what I call barriers to belief. Uh, if indeed there's an actual Messiah that's soon to be revealed, I would think it would behoove us to understand the barriers that we have in order to evade that belief. So, if the Messiah's presence and purpose upon his appearance should carry the magnitude of import for life on earth or hereafter, the consequences of unbelief or disbelief could be catastrophic, beyond belief, so to say. So, we're going to explore some of the common barriers to belief when we get back from this upcoming break. But I want to make available to you two books that I believe will help you, help all of us in this regard. There's a reason Jesus said that deception was going to be so monumental, friends. And it is. We're deceived even with regard to the word believe. It's unbelievable how deceived we are with regard to the word believe and its implications for us. The word has become very cheap and cheaper by the day. And words matter. That's why the Bible is called the word of God. The word of God. And the word of God is sharp, piercing even the dividing asunder of uh, soul and spirit, discerns even the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's what the word of God is designed to do. But we don't like it that way. That's the part about the Word of God we don't like. We like the Word of God that tells us what we want to hear. Makes us feel good at the moment. But the purpose for the Word of God was to make us good, not to make us feel good. That's the difference between faith, real faith, and feelings. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. This is Viewpoint. Have you ever considered what the early church was like? Many people are developing a heart longing for a greater fulfillment in our practices as Christians. A recent study showed 53,000 people a week are leaving the back door of America's churches in frustration. What is going on? Why has there not been even a 1% gain among followers of Christ in the last 25 years? Could it be that God is seeking to restore first century Christianity for the 21st century? Jesus said, I'll build my church. Is Christ by his spirit stirring to prepare the church for the 21st century? The early church prayed together and broke bread from house to house. They were family, and it was said by all who observed, behold how they love one another. Incredible. But the same can be found right now. Go to saveus.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's saveus.org. Click Sell Church. Today we're talking about the mystification of belief. 
And uh, in chapter 20 of my book, Messiah, Unveiling the Mystery of the Ages, the subtitle is called, The Very Word Messiah Should Be So Sobering to Every Sincere and Serious-Minded Person. And I, I believe that wholeheartedly. That's what we're talking about here today on Viewpoint, because there is a growing sense among professing Christians that we are at the end of the age when Glenn Beck says today that he believes that Jesus could be here within 10 years, certainly. When a woman calls me yesterday and tells me that she's been in prayer and had this profound sense that Yeshua was coming back within a half a dozen years, a handful of years. I'm not using those words as prophecy coming from them. They're not prophesying. They're saying that something is working in their mind and their heart to convince them that time is very short. That's what Jesus tried to communicate through many of his parables, friends. To be ready. Do not presume that you're ready. That's what the parable of the ten virgins was about. Five prepared, five did not. Five waited until the bridegroom was coming, and then all of a sudden they realized, whoa, I'm not ready. So they went to get ready, but it was too late, and the door was shut. It's a painful parable to show what Jesus was trying to show and compel us all to understand. The coming of the just one in his final messianic reign to judge the world in righteousness is not going to be a Sunday school picnic for most people. It's going to be perilous. If you think we're living in perilous times now, just think what it's going to be like when Jesus rides in, as it's depicted in Revelation chapter 19, and he speaks and his mouth is like a sword, and he's... uh, defeating all of the unrighteousness in the world and those that are perpetuating it. This is the Jesus of the Bible we're talking about, not the Jesus that we imagine. It's the Jesus of the Bible. So we, we can't just sing, I can only imagine. That might be a nice song title, but it's not good enough for preparing for the coming of the Messiah. That requires a girding up of my mind and my heart to realize and take assessment of my life, my choices, my will, my emotions, whether or not I'm lining up in spirit and in truth with the word, the will, and the ways of the Lord, whether the people that I'm associating with are doing that, even in my church, or am I just willing to hear what I want to hear because Well, that's just the culture that I live in. So, two books I want to make available, and then we're going to talk very briefly about some of these barriers to belief. Uh, One is Messiah, Unveiling the Mystery of the Ages. And I've been sharing with you some thoughts from the chapter called The Mystification of Belief. Because it's created a situation in our lives, in the church, that is 
very dangerous. It's a way, it's another way of specifically looking at deception. In addition to that, the book Seduction of the Saints, How to Stay Pure in a World of Deception. I shared some thoughts from that book earlier on in the program today. That book is an $18 book, yours for $15 on our website, saveus.org, Seduction of the Saints. Messiah, my latest book, Unveiling the Mystery of the Ages, $22 on our website, saveus.org. Now, if you'd like to get both of those books together, uh, the postage and handling will not be $5 per book, but it will be $5 for the first book and $2 for the second book, a total of 7 so you'll save $3 that way. And you can do that. You can do that right there on the website, saveus.org. You can give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA, 1-800-SAVE-USA, or write to us at Save America Ministries. P.O. Bonk 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255. Writing a check, again, at $5 for postage and handling for the first book, and if you get both of them, a total of $7. Okay. By the way, it's not about selling books. We're not here to sell books. We don't make any money on these books. The funds that go to us for these books go right back into getting the next book out to communicate part of the message that needs to come out to prepare God's people. I don't receive a dime from it. To make tremendous effort to put them together, but I don't receive a dime from it. So, just so you understand, this is not about self-promotion. This is about promoting the word, the will, and the ways of God in such a way as to capture the minds and hearts of God's people so that they will be prepared. All right. Beliefs, uh, barriers to belief. The first barrier is the barrier of culture. And our cultures vary. We know that. And even within the broader culture, there are many subcultures. So within our nations alone, you have different outlooks, viewpoints, group ideas, and so on. The same is true in the church. But such so-called cultural truths are not actually truth at all. They're just accepted group opinions and values. But those so-called group-defined truths present almost impenetrable barriers to a contrary belief unless there is a deeply serious seeking mind and heart for a greater truth upon which to establish a believable belief that will stand the test of countermanding evidence. Then there's also the barrier of relational acceptance. Families. The ordained foundation of society carries powerful persuasion in the the formation and enforcement of beliefs. So the family is, in effect, kind of like a miniature culture, isn't it? Yeah. So families oftentimes create a massive fear of rejection that causes us to embrace a belief or conviction that's contrary to truth. And true professing Christians well understand this. Then there's the barrier of truth itself. Truth itself is now portrayed as a as kind of a mystery. You can't know truth. Like Pontius Pilate said, what is truth? 
Well, we're saying the same thing today. Truth is the quality or state of being true. The truth is that which is true or in accordance with fact or reality. But when the President of the United States says we believe in truth and not facts, you know we've got a problem. Just watch his mouth, and you know he's not telling you the truth. Then, the barrier of unbelief. There are many people, when faced with seeming obvious, even seemingly incontrovertible facts, still refuse to believe that which is true. And there are a whole lot of reasons for that. whole lot of reasons for that. It's because we want to believe what we want to believe. For instance, regarding the classic issue of divorce and remarriage, God says, I hate it. Yet, in the last 30 to 40 years, increasingly within the church, we've come to say that divorce was an answer to prayer. And that some frisky filly or, or gent coming in after a divorce when your spouse is still living sweeps you off your feet and you say that's an answer to prayer when God calls it adultery. You see the problem? Then there's the majority, the barrier of majority opinion. See, as the culture slides, majority of opinion slides with it. So as human beings, we have to always and intentionally probe our own minds and hearts as to the reasons why we might be persuaded by the fickle feelings of the masses. And that's true with regard to what it means to prepare. See, if the majority of the people don't even believe in hell anymore, then why should they believe in a Messiah? They don't even believe they need a Savior. We'll save ourselves. Then there's the barrier of fatalism. You know, that French phrase, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. Yeah. So the idea there is that fate itself becomes the ultimate fact of my life beliefs, and therefore it doesn't matter what I do, what I say, what I believe, what, how I behave. None of those things really matter because que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. The future's not mine to see, que sera, sera. Whatever it is, or whatever Right? Whatever. But if if it's true that the Messiah is coming, that kind of cavalier thinking is very dangerous, isn't it? Could be devastating when confronted with the reality of Messiah's actual appearance. Because he's going to judge the world in righteousness. And it ain't going to be pretty. It's going to be shocking to the core. And it will actually cause the majority of people on this planet, many professing Christians, to embrace an imposter or a counterfeit Messiah that seems more easy and desirable to believe, at least on the front edge of his promises. And then, finally, there's the barrier of fear. Fear fear is very powerful. You know that. It can protect, but it can also paralyze us. It's one of the greatest and most pernicious barriers to unveiling the mystery of the ages. That's fear. It frustrates genuine belief in the faces of, of face of forces like a perceived majority thinking, family or cultural traditions, governmental mandates, all of these kinds of things. And that's where truth and faith collide. And our tr- the truth and our faith have to become congruent. In other words, they have to match. That's integrity. So 
what this all means is very rapidly now, it's becoming the time to choose and become genuine in our following of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We don't want to be come under the unfettered paralysis of multiplied and self-justified fears. We've got to demystify belief. Genuine belief has to be demystified. It has to be seen and embraced for what it is, not for what we might wish it were or what we want to construe it to be. We have to be governed by the facts of God's word and truth, not by the multiplied predilections of our ever-vacillating feelings. Right? But the painful truth is that most people are going to choose to perpetually enshroud their minds and hearts with perceived comforting barriers. And they will be fully receptive to a coming fake real Messiah. Just one outlook, friends, one aspect of dealing with the issue of the coming Messiah. He's not an issue. He's a person. He's God. And we're not. Unveiling the Mystery of the Ages. $22 book. Will open your eyes, your heart, in so many, many different ways to understand. Oh, it's filled with all kinds of information and facts, but it's all for transformation. It's on our website, saveus.org. Messiah unveiling the mystery of the ages. In addition to that, the book, Seduction of the Saints, Staying Pure in a World of Deception, $15, right there. Both of these books, dynamic, life-changing, world-changing, actually. And thanks for joining us. We're confronting the deepest issues of America's heart and home from God's eternal perspective, even today. Become a partner, friends. Prayer, financial support, all of those in telling others about the program. Let's be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving our own selves. Jesus is coming soon. listening to Viewpoint with Chuck Grissmeyer. Viewpoint is supported by the faithful gifts of our listeners. Let me urge you to become a partner with Chuck as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation. Join us again next time on Viewpoint as we confront the issues of America's heart and home.